Well, good morning, Catalyst. How are you today? Good day, isn't it? Hey, you know what? Do me, do me a favor. We have our students. We have our students in here with us today. Uh, do me a favor. Let's just welcome them. They're ridiculous. So let's just say thanks. Now, there's there's somebody I want you to meet because he's really a ghost. If you're not in the student ministry, his name's Gene Fletcher. Gene, why don't you and Tabitha stand up, Tabitha? I want you to meet who heads up our student ministries. Yeah. Really, really good guy. And for some of you, you hear a name, but you don't know a face. And it's important that you know that. Don't you think it matters that you know who's really hanging out with your kids? So uh, we're, we're delighted with that. You know what? Oh, my goodness. Many years ago, Ellen and I are sitting, this is years ago, sitting in an, in an eye doctor's office waiting our turn. And I said, honey, I think I'm going to go get a, a drink of water. So I I. Turn to the left. I asked the lady where. She said, you just go down this hallway. So I, I start down this hallway. And this was an office for multiple doctors. And so as I walk up to the water fountain, I notice there's a guy with his hairbrush cleaning it in the water fountain. I don't know about you, but I, I almost threw up, you know? <laughs> and plus, after I drank, there was a little... No, I'm just kidding you. I turned around. I walked back into the room, and I sit down. And I said, Ellen, you're not going to believe what just happened. I said, what? I said, there's some guy cleaning his hairbrush in the water fountain. And about the time the guy comes around the corner, there are ladies sitting beside Ellen goes, is that the guy you're talking about? I said, yeah. She said, that's my husband. I thought, oh, boy. I said, well, he's got a clean hairbrush. I want you to know that. <laughs> you ever had a time where the intent of what you said did not follow the actions with which you said it? Let me ask you again. Have you ever had a time in your life where the intent of what you said did not follow the actions with which you meant it. I want to tell you, I ask that for a very specific reason. There are absolutely three things, friends, and you can count on this. There are three things that will me measure the message of any messenger. Let me say it again. There are three things that will absolutely measure the message of any messenger, and it is this. It is our authenticity, are we who we say we are? Do we act like who we are? Our credibility. Do we speak truth? Do we live out truth? And finally, our integrity. Do we have character as an absolute component of who we are? And I, I promise you this, I don't, I don't care what age you are. I don't care what stage of life you're in. I don't care where you find yourself. Those three things will ultimately measure the message that you give, and I promise you this, and they will ultimately either hinder or help the impact of mine in your lives. We're going to talk today, we're checking for the right motivations in how we do, what we do, and the way we do it. Paul speaks to the church at Thessalonica, and he speaks to this issue Paul understands that for ministry to be built upon some foundational principles, it's absolutely critical. It's absolutely critical that you and I do what we do for the right motivations and not the wrong ones. And what we quickly find out from Paul is this. Impact, impact, friends, is all about people. Listen to what he says. You know, brothers and sisters, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 1. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. One translation says it was not a failure. 
The word without results, the word failure, simply mean that you and I work in vain. It means that we can accomplish something, but it's really void of meaning. It just doesn't have the content or the substance to create value in what we're trying to produce. Now, some believe that Paul's critics are saying that he hadn't really accomplished anything good. But I, I really, I, that may be the case, but I think what Paul really wants us to do, I think Paul wants us to understand that for God to do something in our midst, for God to do something even in the difficult times, there's a component that you and I begin to act in a way that creates the right intent by the right actions. Paul's response is summed up. It's, it's the crux of it. He says, you know. And for Paul, it's a foregone conclusion to him that the Thessalonians understand that that ministry mattered because of how Jesus has mattered in their lives. And honestly, friends, when you think about it, honestly, the impact of our lives will never be ultimately found in and of ourselves. Can I say that again? The impact of mine in your lives will never ultimately be found in and of ourselves. It will always be found in how our lives impact others' lives for Christ. The Thessalonians were themselves the proof of the power of the gospel. Their transformation spoke to the transforming power of Christ that Paul declared. It was Paul's intent as he arrived at that place that his actions would represent the gospel of Jesus. You see, they knew. They were living proof of it, of his credibility, of literally his integrity of ministry. Paul wants them to take a hold of the fact that the greatest impact in ministry is always about how you and I impact others for the cause of Christ. And that's so important for us to understand as a congregation. It is not about us. Wait now. It is not about us. You know what? I love this prayer wall, don't you? Listen, I want to tell you a couple of people that we need to thank. One is Diana Frank, who this was kind of her brainchild, and brought it to fruition. And Ryan Webster, who has the ridiculous gifts to pull it off. Not everybody can hang chicken wire like that. That's impressive. <laughs> but I want to tell you, there's an intent, right? There's an intent for why we built it. One of our footprints, as we've talked about the last three weeks, is that you and I, we would be a congregation that engages the Lord in worship and what? And prayer. This is another way for you and I to take that and have a praxis to it. That you and I can live it out, act it out. And we have seven different areas that we can pray on. I'm going to quickly say, pray for our church, pray for our vision, pray for our leaders, pray for the unity of this body. Did you know so much of the effectiveness of ministry depends on the unity of a church? It's hard to be effective when you're stumbling over each other. Second, redemption. For those people that we are trying to build relationships with, that we know may need a relationship with Christ, we need to pray for them. I promise you, friends, there are some barriers around certain hearts that will never be brought down unless you and I pray them down. So we pray for people. 
Give praise, give thanksgiving for how God has shown up and what he's done. Pray for our community that we're going to make a difference. Pray for our civic leaders. Pray for the unity of Pendleton. Pray for our schools. Pray for our administrators. Pray for our teachers. Pray for our government officials across this country. Pray for healing, whether it be relational, whether it be physical, whether it be spiritual. And pray for relationships. How many of us... How many of us don't have some relationships that need the hand of the Lord to cover them? Paul says, I want you to know something. Honestly, the outcome of every congregation, friends, the outcome of every congregation rests on how its people are committed to the fact that they will impact other lives for the cause of Christ and realize it impact, impact, Always has been, always will be about people. There are two questions that I want to be prominent for us. The first one is this, what has God given us? And how have we used what God has given us? You know, I thought about this as I was preparing for this, for this teaching. I thought about these two questions. And I was reminded of two sisters that I had the privilege literally of sharing almost nine decades with. And both of these women, both of these women had more brokenness in their lives than any life ever deserved. I mean, if I could sit here and tell you the stories of the backdrop of their lives, I promise you, some of us would weep at the brokenness that both these women felt. But here, here's the thing. One of these women talked about God. One of these women really knew God. And the redeeming work that Christ did in her life Change your attitude. Let me, let, me tell you, let me tell you four things that God gives to you and me in every situation. God brings his grace. Did you know that? You and I will never reach a place nor be in a place that God will not extend his grace to us. The second one is his power. We've never reached a place that the divine power of Christ, him living in us by the power of his Holy Spirit, is not available to us. He will never not extend his love to us. He's undeniable, unselfish. And he brings to give us the opportunity that in every situation, friends, every situation that we find ourselves in, did you know you and I have the capacity to love? And finally, he gives us opportunity. In every, in every situation we find ourselves in, we have the opportunity to do good. I don't care what hallway you walk at school. I don't care what relationship you're in or out of. Every one of us have the opportunity, have the opportunity to do good. One of these ladies lived with such love, such joy. The optimism with which she lived life was amazing to me. And the fortitude with which she lived out her faith awed me. You see, the reality of it is, if you and I continually, as one sister did, as we continually live out brokenness, then our actions, our attitude, our relationships will ultimately give birth to brokenness. 
And when I witnessed the difference in their children, it gave evidence to that fact. We have to ask the question, what has God given us through his son? His grace, his power, his love, opportunities to do good. And how have we, how have we used those opportunities? And frankly, I'm going to be honest with you, like Paul, it would be easier to not respond, right? Listen to what he says in verse 2. We had previously suffered. You know, that word means painful. He's letting us know this was not just being uncomfortable. This suffering had pain attached to it. And he said, and we were treated outrageously. That word means we were humiliated to a deep extent. And this is what he says, as you well know. Now you have to understand Acts 16 to really understand this passage. Because Acts 16 describes for you and me Paul's initial experience in coming into Philippi. And Paul there delivers a young girl from a, a, an evil spirit. But she had the capacity to predict the future. And the men who owned her, she was a slave. And the men who owned her literally pimped her out. They had a fantastic profit margin. Because it wasn't hard to keep it up. But Paul does something. Paul, in the name and in the power of Christ, he speaks to the girl, delivers the girl, and this is what happened. The money well dried up, and they just weren't particularly happy. So much so, they created such a stir. Please hear me. Paul and his companions were eventually beaten, severely flogged, and they were imprisoned with their feet in stocks. Now you know why he said we suffered and were treated outrageously. Now Paul tells the Thessalonians they know and they do. Probably, in all probability, they could still see the bruises when he first got there. They saw the stripes on their backs. And I want to tell you something. The Thessalonians understood that this ministry for Paul cost something. This wasn't cheap. This wasn't a shallow gospel when it came to the personal price that Paul had paid for it. And I don't know about you, but would, would you have considered walking away? Yeah. I mean, if we're honest, I mean, if we're honest, would we consider saying, you know what, God? Enough. I love you, but I, I'm not... I'm not going back in that capacity. Do you know what? In some honesty today, if we're really being honest, for some of us, our past hurts limit our willingness to risk again for the gospel. But then we hear verse 2. The last part. And Paul says this word, but 
And I want you to know in the Greek, this is the strongest contrast possible from the previous sentence. There, there's, a, there's a deliberate break here. This is one of those where he said, you know, I would have done it, but. No, this is one where Paul stops and he goes, I would have done it, but. But. With the help of God. We dared to tell you the gospel in spite of strong opposition. Notice this phrase, with the help of God. I mean, suddenly we understand that Paul understands his strength is not dependent on his own, but it's God's strength. Paul realizes it is not about his capacity, but God's capacity to work through him. In Acts 16, we kind of get this sense that understanding of why Paul's dependence is so strong in the Lord. Why he has such confidence in the fact that he can dare to do this again. Listen to what it says in Acts 16. It said, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God in the jail. And the other prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a massive earthquake. The prison was shaken to its foundations. And notice what it says. And all the doors flew open and the chains of every prisoner, I love this phrase, they were set loose. The jailer wakes up. What does he do? He sees the doors open. He hears the chains drop. And he takes out his sword. He's going to take his life. Because he knows, ultimately, if he loses one prisoner, they're going to take his life. And then here's Paul. Crying out in the dust, the darkness. Don't harm yourself. Don't you love this? We're all here. Nobody's run. Nobody fled. And the jailer rushed in and says, and he fell trembling before Paul. And this is what he asked. What must I do to be saved? And Paul just says, believe in the Lord Jesus. And you will be saved. And that is what he says, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him. And at that hour of the night, which means it was an ungodly hour, he took them and he washed their wounds and immediately he and all his family, don't you love this? They were baptized. You see, Paul understood something that he wanted the Thessalonians to understand deeply. The gospel, friends, is not a shallow or a weak message. It is a powerful message backed up by a powerful God. He writes, we dared to tell you his gospel. Don't you love that phrase? His gospel. Paul wants to understand this is not, this is not his personal story. This is God's story And when it says he dared, it literally means to take a risk. But it means to have the courage to take a risk because you have confidence in what you're about to do. And after what happened in Philippi, it's not hard to understand, is it? How confident Paul was in the power of Christ. We dared to tell you his gospel in strong opposition. That's why in Romans 1.16, Paul can write, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. You see, Paul has some kind of, I want to say, great um, substance about what he's saying. 
Have you ever had a moment where people ask you about your faith, and this is how you say, well, you know what, I, I uh, yeah, uh, uh, I, oh, I, uh, yeah, I know Jesus. Instead of daring to risk and saying, you know what, yeah, Jesus is the Lord of my life. I've given myself to him. And if you don't mind, I'd like to tell you, I'd like to tell you how this Jesus has changed my life. Paul said he dared. He dared to risk. And then Paul tells us how you and I need to respond. And as we act on this, how, how do we do it with the right intentions? Listen to verse 3. He says, For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. There are three things Paul speaks directly. First, it's not in error. Did you know that, that word means to intentionally, it just means to intentionally deceive someone. It means to intentionally lead somebody astray. It means to present the gospel in a deceiving way, in a way that's just not true, it's not real. An illustration of this would be for me to share the gospel this morning and to tell you this phrase. I want you to know, if you accept Jesus, you'll never have another struggle in your life. All who believe that, let's go buy some swamp land in Mississippi. It means to be honest and upfront. Second, he says we don't do it with impure motives. This literally means to be unclean. And it's primarily talking about sexual immorality. It means to use somebody's position or somebody's weakness so that you can coerce, so that you can manipulate, so you can take advantage of somebody in a weakened, more vulnerable place. And it means to receive sexual benefits from it. You know, I, I want to say something here. Because I really believe our culture today promotes sexual pro promiscuity like buying a bag of M&M's. And I, I want to tell you what I mean. See, if you and I have a little craving for chocolate, and Lord knows in this fast, I've had more than a little, little craving for it. I'll just buy a bag, and I'll pop a handful. Let me, let me say something, church. Please hear me. The Bible speaks so clearly to us that sexual relations are meant to be had in the marriage bed. Hebrews 13, 4 says, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. 1 Corinthians 6 says, run from sexual sin. I mean, honestly, would David's life have been different had he, if he had run from Bathsheba? Would Joseph's life have been different knowing that Potiphar's wife had the hots for him? Would it have been different if he had run says, for sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that mine and your bodies, we are, they are the temple of the Holy Spirit? It is God who lives in you, and you and I gave ourselves to God. Paul says, you and I don't belong to ourselves, for God bought you and me with a high price. Friends, we're going to take communion in a little bit. I'm going to tell you the cross was a high price. 
And this is all Paul says, so you must honor God with your body. Listen, and I, I want to share this with you. If, if any of you ever want to talk about this and why, why we believe so strongly, why learning to cherish another person and love them enough that you're willing to wait will absolutely help you define your love for somebody. And if you ever want to talk about that, Ellen and I are available. But let me, let's just do ourselves a favor and really process before we buy the bag of M&Ms. And Paul, finally Paul says, we don't do it with trickery or guile. Don't you like that word guile? You know what that word means? It means to catch a fish without any bait. Don't you love that? <laughs> what it means really is to set a trap for another person for your own benefit. It's to be more about yourself than you are the whole. It means to exploit your position for personal gain or fulfillment or favors. The truth is, and if we're honest here, I mean, let's, let's, let's get frank. If we're honest here, I promise you this, we're all very susceptible to every one of these. And if you say you're not, I promise you, you're lying. So Paul says, what do we do and why do we do what we do? Listen to verse 4. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God. Wow. That, that literally, that phrase rocked my world this week. Because he's, man. I got to thinking, I was wondering, Lord, how many times have I, how many times have I stepped up front and maybe not been approved by you? Maybe I said something to manipulate the text. Maybe, maybe I didn't pray enough this week that it wouldn't be about me but you. He says, we speak as those approved by God. And notice what he says, to be entrusted with the gospel. Did you know that is a person who recognizes that we've been given a ridiculous gift. A privilege so great that we, that we honestly should be a little nervous. And Paul says this, on the contrary. It means in mind in your actions, they just need to be different than the norm, right? We want to live life in a way that's without deceit, without impure intentions, that are never self-serving. And when he says we speak as those approved, it, it literally means that you're tested by time. That the outcome of mine in your lives provide the outcomes that Jesus would want. And I promise you, it doesn't mean you're perfect, but what it means is our intent, our intent is to live and act in a way that absolutely, positively reflects Jesus. And then he says, for we're not trying to please people. And this, this, 
as, as I've shared with you, this, is, uh, this was the most difficult for me because pride is my greatest sin. And I promise you, in the early years of my ministry, I was way too concerned with what other people thought. But Paul says this, it is God who tests our hearts That means that God is able to see what other people can't see. It's literally like a doctor who does a heart cath of your heart and discovers there's blockage where we didn't even know there were problems or issues. Paul says, I want you to know that's, that's how deeply God sees us. We're not trying to please men, but God. We're not trying to receive glory. We're not trying to find high esteem. We're not trying to be in a place of honor. This is what I love about this. And this is where, because I think this whole text honestly is meant to bring us to the place that we ultimately want and need to be. And it is this, we finally grow to a peaceful place, a peaceful place of knowing that Jesus is enough. And I don't know about you, but I love to be around people like that. In fact, you know, every once in a while I get this ridiculous privilege of getting to go and and speak at some places and and you know what my favorite thing is? I get so excited. It's much more about, it's much more about this than it is even going to teach. It's that I, I, get, I get to sit at the feet and I get to break bread with people who have done far more than I have with far less. I go hang out with people that I just admire so much because these folks have been pastoring 30, 40, 50 years They've never been invited to go somewhere else. They, they just do what they do because of this great call on their lives, their passion for Jesus. They're willing to risk. They go to difficult places. They hang in there. They stay the course. I'm going to tell you, those are my heroes, friend, and none, none was greater than Sam Woolham. Springfield, Ohio, right, Jeff? Wore a cross but that doggone big everywhere he went. We had some cross bling going on. It was amazing. I dare say that Sam never pastored a church, probably over 70. And in his own words, he called me one day. He had been retired. They called him out of retirement. And he said, Rollin, this is another, he said, I've never been to one that isn't. He said, this is another broken and hurting church. And he said, I, I honestly, I pleaded with God that he wouldn't want me to go back. But he does. And there's Sam. Here's a guy, friends, who drove a rock truck in a gravel pit so that he could help the church subsidize his salary in the ministry of the church. You talk about the right heart. You talk about the right intentions. Aren't aren't we humbled by people like that? And he said, I walk into this church, and I think he told me they had 13 people. 
And he thought to himself, Lord, what in the world are we going to do here? And he said, then I noticed we had a really good kitchen. (laughs) And he said, because I noticed when I walked out the steps of the front door, there were three homeless people sitting there. And he said, this is what I figured out we could do. We could could make meals for people. You know, friends, a few years later, this wonderful, wonderful little church was preparing over a thousand meals, I believe, a month to feed hungry people. Now, let me ask two questions. What has God given you? He gave us a kitchen. And how have we used what God has given us? And is it, is it with the right intent? Today we get to celebrate communion together. And I'm going to ask those who are serving to come on up front. And today I'll give some instructions because we we got a lot of folks. And um, if you would, these these two center lines here, okay? If you'll exit out that side, if you'll exit out that side, is that good enough? And then we'll loop around and come back on both sides. Fair enough? And I I think we can do this probably in an hour or two. Just kidding. (laughs) I want to open the prayer wall to you. Some people have already been over. Can you tell? You'll notice there's two different colors. One's lavender, one, one is white. The lavender is if you want our prayer team to pray over your concern. The other is if you want it left there so you can just go back and place your hand over it and pray consistently. It's going to take a little while today, so why don't we pray? Why don't, why don't, why don't we hold the elements and we'll, we'll do those together? But how about if we take a moment and we go over and pray for somebody? Perhaps we pray for ourselves, but... We take a moment and let's utilize this ridiculous gift. Catalyst, let's go to another level in prayer. Fair enough? And then let's celebrate communion together. We invite any of you today, we share open communion. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, by golly, come up and get the juice and the bread. And let's just worship. And let's pray. Let's stand and you come and be served.